Make sure it's on. Let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches, and I would surely be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on the lake, just on a puddle after an annual rain, and I would surely be your Peter. Let me meet you on the, lo- on the road, Lord, just once. You would have to blind me on the waters and expressway, just a few bright lights in the way, and I would surely be your Paul. Let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime. Just meeting you in the Word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? This is a poem written by Norman Shirk in response to uh, uh, the, the ways that uh, Thomas had doubted the Word of God in his life. And he's saying, it is so hard to meet Thomas, and what I want to do is I want to see a miracle. And, and if I just see this miracle, as I read the Bible, I see all these miracles taking place. Why can't I just see one myself? Then I would surely believe. But in reality, this is a very sinful way to think. The Word of God shows up in miraculous ways. He shows up in powerful ways. And I wonder, I just wonder if any of us feel this way when we come to our Bible reading. Like it's not extraordinary enough. It's not miraculous enough. Oh Lord, let me just see you in your Word. What if we saw reading God's Word as a miraculous thing? The fact that God of the universe revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What if that was extraordinary? On top of that, in in John chapter 12, he says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. He could have done any amount of signs before these people, and they still would not have believed. It's not seeing miracles that allows us to believe, but the miracles that he performed do indeed show us and point us to the ultimate miracle of the forgiveness of sins. And so tonight, we will be going through the life of Thomas and seeing how he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be going through exactly and pinpoint every, every part of his, of his life that shows up, which is only in the book of John, believe it or not. And, and the book of John is actually about believing. The whole book is about believing. So go figure that doubting Thomas is in the book about believing. So we're going to see exactly how he goes from unbelief to belief. And to me, it was absolutely miraculous to see the different stages of Thomas as he came to know Jesus Christ and ultimately said, my Lord and my God. But I want to challenge each and every one of us with thinking about, do I think enough about the miracle that a wretched sinner like me could be forgiven? Do I glory in that enough? Do I believe that truly today? Do I believe that my sins actually can be forgiven? And do I believe that Jesus is the one who can do it? So we're going to go through four points. We're going to go through pessimistic yet courageous Thomas, questioning Thomas, unbelieving Thomas, and then we're finally going to go to believing Thomas, where he professes the great profession in John chapter 20. And tonight we're going to be in the the book of John, so if you'd turn your Bibles to John chapter 11, we'll begin there. Before we begin, I'm going to pray for us, pray for our time. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, Lord. We thank you so much for revealing yourself to us, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness in that. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and of grace. We, we thank you, Lord, that you are also a God of, of wrath against sin. Lord, we thank you that you're just. Lord, that you don't allow sin to go unpunished. Lord, we thank you as sinners, Lord, that we can be reconciled. Lord, that we can be in your presence. Lord, we, that we can be in your presence and fully enjoy it if we are in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would, would glory in the fact that Jesus came to the earth. Lord, that the God of the universe came in the flesh to ransom us from our sin. That he came to show us the way of healing and reconciliation. Lord, I pray today, as we go through this text of yours, Lord, that you've, you've given us, Lord, that we would believe, that we would have faith, and that we trust in you even more so than we did before. Lord, I pray that you would grant that. Through me, in spite of me, Lord, I pray that your will be done. Lord, I pray that you would erase any falseness from my lips. Lord, I pray that you, your truth would be proclaimed. Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified. And that much fruit would come to bear from your great and glorious gospel. Lord, we thank you for the story of Thomas. And Lord, that we can have hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John chapter 11... Let me give a little context before we dive right in. In John chapter 10, the Feast of Dedication had just taken place, and the Jews were gathered around him, verse 24, and they're asking him questions, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. And Jesus answers them, and not in so much words, he says that he is God. He confesses to be the Christ. He says, I and the Father are one. And on top of that, he tells them that they are not part of his flock. So not only is he telling them that he is God, but he's also telling them that they are not part of the flock that will see eternal life. He's saying both these things. And the Jews end up getting very angry at this, so they pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus ends up getting away. Just by by the hair on his neck, he gets away, he crosses the Jordan, and as he crosses the Jordan, in chapter 11, Mary and Martha come and tell him very sad news. In verse 11, he says, or chapter 11, verse 3, he says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, as Lazarus. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were not, now just seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12, The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So that's Thomas's pessimistic yet courageous statement to his disciples. It's pessimistic in the sense that, that he's saying, yet yeah, let us also go that we may die with him. He's, he's not understanding God's sovereignty. He's not understanding that, that Jesus is saying that he's going to resurrect him, and that he's saying that I am sovereign and I'm not going to die yet. It's not my time. But he didn't, he didn't know that. So he's not trusting God's power, number one, to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. Right? Look back in verse 4. Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. He says it very plainly. This illness does not lead to death. Now, Lazarus does, in fact, end up dying, but he's going to resurrect him again. He's saying he's not going to stay dead. Then go ahead to verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And he's, he's talking about Lazarus dying here. And then again in verse 15, or verse 14, it says, Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. So he's saying, Lazarus has died, but he's saying, And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, that you may believe when I resurrect him. You may believe that I have the power to resurrect, that I am the resurrection and the life. And he does this for a specific purpose, that his people might believe. And John 20, verse 31 says, And that by believing may have life in the Son. So he's, his purpose is that they may believe, but the purpose of believing is to find eternal life. That's the whole point. That's what John's trying to drive home. He's trying to say, if you believe in the Son, everyone wants life, and I'm showing you where to find it. It's in the Son. And he's pointing, he's doing all these miracles to show them that he is, in fact, God incarnate. He came. He has, he has the ability to resurrect. He has the ability to resurrect our bodies from the dead. If we don't believe that, that's a huge problem. We don't have any hope after life. It's also pessimistic in the fact that he's not trusting God's sovereignty in knowing when he is going to die. Right? Let's go back to verses 7 through 10. Right? After this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us also go to Judea again. Right? This is right where they were going to stone him. This is where he just was. So the disciples asked, I would ask smartly, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? Now what does that mean? What's he implying by saying that? What he's saying is that there's twelve hours in a day to work, right? So in this time, people would work from sun up to sundown, right? Because you could see, you could see exactly what you're doing, and to work in the nighttime was very dangerous. I mean, if you're doing construction at night, you can't see exactly what you're doing, and it's probably going to end up pretty bad, hurting yourself or hurting someone else. So he's saying, right now, there are 12 hours in the day, right now, and I'm doing the work of my Father. It is still the daylight. There's still work to be done, i.e., here, raising Lazarus from the dead. And until that happens, not a hair on my head can be touched because I have work to do, and it is still daylight. If anyone walks in the day, he says he does not stumble because he, he sees the light of this world. Now, he, he uses very particular language 
He, he does not stumble, but he walks in the light of this world. In John 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he sees the light of life, and the light of life is Jesus. Do not worry, Thomas, for it is not my time to go yet. And when it is my time to go, there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's God's plan. It's what I came here to do to ultimately fulfill. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. If we are not in Christ, we are going to stumble because we can't see properly. We cannot see properly. And he's also pessimistic in the fact that he's saying, let us also go that we may die with him. So it's not only is he questioning everything else, he's questioning when Jesus is going to die. He's saying, we're going to die with Jesus, we're going to die with Lazarus, all of us are going to die, is essentially what he's saying by association. Then because we're with Jesus, there's not a chance that we're going to get out. They're going to see us as well. They're going to say, you're with Jesus? You're the guy, we're with the guy who just said that, that claimed to be God? You're going to be stoned as well. And Thomas knew that very well. But it's courageous. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. He's saying this to his disciples. He's trying to, in a sense, kind of encourage them to go. But at the same time, tell them the reality of, if we go, odds are we're going to die. Odds are we're going to die. And this is how we look and how we see things when we're not seeing things in a supernatural view. This is completely natural, and I do not blame him for a second. Right? If we are to go walking through an alley where someone has guns, and I just made it away but by the skin of my teeth, and, and they say, let us go back there again, I'm going to say, you're crazy. There's not a chance I'm going back there where I could risk my life. So this is very legitimate, but, but Thomas is saying, let us go. I would rather be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and die with him than be apart from him and save my life. So in a sense, it is courageous, although I would argue that he does not understand fully the presence of God. He doesn't understand the sovereignty of God. He doesn't understand who Jesus is fully at this time. But this has great application for us is that do you believe that the presence of the Lord is worth giving up your life for? Do you believe that dying to yourself daily is worth being in the presence of the Lord? Do you think it's worth it now to serve and to give and to be faithful in order to be called righteous on the day of visitation, to be in his presence fully? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to give up meaningless earthly things to be in his presence and Jesus did, in fact, perform this miracle. And in verse 45, there, were, there was an outcome of what happened from it. Go ahead, turn to chapter 11, verse 45. Right after Lazarus had risen, many of the Jews that were with him, therefore who had come with Mary, had, been, had seen what he did, believed in him. So he did this miracle, and now Jews were believing. After Jesus does work, it leaves people in two camps. It does not leave anybody stagnant, but it, it leaves people believing in him and trusting in him more fully. And then verse 53 also. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There were Pharisees who did not like what he was doing. 
they were greatly angered because Jesus was gaining popularity. He was gaining much, much power, and the Pharisees did not like this at all because they're no longer following them. And so it left people in two camps, either believing in him and following him or hating him. There was no in-between round. But now we're going to go to the second story, questioning Thomas in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. But again, just a little bit of context. Okay, so they're at, uh, Jesus is in the upper room discourse, and he's washed the disciples' feet, and he's just told them that one of them was going to betray them, Judas. And then in verse 33, he says this, Where I'm going, you cannot come. He says this to his disciples. And then in verse 35, or 36, excuse me, he says, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. He says this to Peter. And then in verse 37, Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus tells him that he's going to deny him three times. So it's a very, very eerie moment. He's just told them that they cannot follow him where he's going. And these are the disciples who've been with him for three straight years everywhere he's gone. Now he's telling them, where I'm going now, you cannot follow. And he's telling Peter, one of the most beloved apostles, that you are going to deny me three times, and one of you will ultimately betray me. So he's really, really stepping on, on, on soft ice here. He's, he's walking around, and he's saying these things truthfully, but it's got to be very, very uh, awkward, to say the least. But then he says this in uh, John 14, verse 1. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says this thing in the midst of saying, There is absolutely no one here who is going to be ultimately faithful. He's saying, you're gonna, you're, You can't come to where I'm going. You can't save yourself because where I'm going is to the cross to pay for your sins and to resurrect. But none of you can pay for your own sin. That's what he's telling them. But they do not understand that. They're probably thinking along the lines of a geography misplacement. Like, like we've gone to him many times. Where in the world could he possibly be going on this earth that we cannot go? But let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's saying, believe also in me because I am God. <laughs> I am Jesus is God. He says, he goes to prepare a, a room for us in his father's house. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So he goes to prepare a place at his death and resurrection. So he's going now to prepare a place for them that they might enjoy being with him forever in his father's house. And this can only be done again with the gospel. We, mu- we must remember the gospel in this, that the gospel is what buys us into his presence. That, that's what gains us the ability to be in the Father's house. And if we lose that, we lose all of Christianity. And we lose all of our hope. Why would your heart be troubled if you knew that Jesus went to prepare your room? How could your heart be troubled believing that God paid for your sins and bought you away into eternal life? How in the world could our hearts be troubled if we actually believed in what he said? 
In verse 3 it says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So not only does he prepare a room for us, he's coming back again to grab us and take us to this place. He doesn't leave us to try and do anything on our own. It is solely him. He says, I will come back and I will guarantee the fact that you will come to my father's house. I'm not leaving it to you to try and find your way after I prepare the room. Rather, I am taking you to myself. Right? He's, he's talking about being in union with Christ. That's, this is so important to know that, that Jesus grabs onto us in his human side and he grabs onto God in his divine nature and he bridges the gap. He bridges the gap that we might go and prepare and be in his presence forever. That's how important it is. And he doesn't leave it to you or to me to find the way. He says, I will come back and I will bring you to myself. That is glorious. Verse 4, he says, And you know the way to where I'm going. But Thomas, this is where Thomas comes in, he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Right, so this might seem like a dumb question for Thomas, but I think it's a very smart question. I think this is a very smart question. He's asking the clarifying question. He's, He's saying, he's saying, Lord, you say it very ambiguous language. You're saying, where I'm going, you cannot come. But then I come afterwards, you're going to prepare a room for us. What does this mean? Lord, just tell us plainly, what is the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I think this is one of the most profound verses and it has greatly shaped my life. Because he's saying three things, but they're not three separate things. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not saying, I am the way, I am also the truth, and I am also the life. These are all three separate. But he's saying, I am the way to the Father because I am the true manifestation of God. I am the truth, and there is no lie in me, I am the only way, and you can trust me because I am the truth. And I am the truth because I am the only one who has eternal life. I am the one who was there in the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? So Jesus has made profound statements about his deity, and here it's coming again to a culmination, saying that I am the way to the Father because I am God. And you can trust in that. You can trust in that. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And he tells him, and you, and you do know him from now on, and you have seen him. Right? Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he is the only one in whom God is well pleased. And that is important because we cannot forget that God is holy and demands perfection, and that was only met in Jesus Christ. He is the way because he has satisfied the wrath of God for our sins, and he is the way because he has lived the perfect life and given it unto us if we believe, if we believe in God. So 
But some might say, this is awfully exclusive. And I don't think it's very loving for Jesus to say this. And I would argue the exact opposite. I think this is the most loving thing he could have said. Because if he would have said anything else, it would have been a lie, number one. But number two, Jesus wants him to have life, right? He wants them to have life, and he's showing them the way. If he were to show them any other way, he would have led them astray into death. And that is not loving at all. When we share the gospel, if we leave out the gospel itself, that Jesus is the only way, we're leading people to their death. An eternal separation from God. Because we are forgetting that God is holy, and God demands perfection. And Jesus is the way, and the truth, and the life. I want you to picture for a second, if you have a little child running around who does not know exactly how intense traffic can be, and he, and he drops the ball, and he goes running after it in the middle of the street, the most loving thing to do is not to say, he'll figure it out himself. Or there's another way. No, no, no. The loving thing to do is to grab him, pull him to yourself, and tell him, if you do that again, you will die. But there is a way to life. It's if you stay out of the street. Right? That is the most loving thing you can do, is to tell the truth and tell it plainly. Now, that child will have a fear of traffic for the rest of his life, probably. But that's a healthy fear. You should fear certain things in your life, right? We should fear God. He's holy. And we are sinners. But Jesus welcomes us by the blood of his cross. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the whole reason we, we are here today, is to remember that, to dwell on that, to dwell on the fact that he ever lives to plead for us now. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he alone can bring forgiveness of sins. So that's questioning Thomas. Now let's go to three unbelieving Thomas in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 25. I think that doubting Thomas is too nice of a term to give to him. I think he's just simply in unbelief. I think unbelief is the correct term for, for who Thomas is. He is not believing in any way, shape, or form, and that's a sin. So I think we ought to call it unbelief, not just simply doubt. And so Thomas here, he applies in the climax of the Gospel of John, right? Jesus has just resurrected and appeared to Mary. And Mary said, I've seen the Lord, and he's announced this, and, and Jesus said, go say this, go Go tell the disciples that you've seen the Lord. And here we pick up in verse 19. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, 
called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So we have here in verse 19 that the disciples were locked away because they were afraid of the Jews. Right? They were afraid that the Jews were going to either harm them or they were going to make fun of them because Jesus had not risen yet, or they were going to be skeptical and say that the apostles took his body away. So they locked themselves in there, and Jesus sh- shows up and says, Shalom, peace be with you. So he walks through a locked door and gives them words of peace. And when he had said this, he had showed them his hands. Right? So he shows them, and the apostles immediately it said that they were glad when they saw the Lord. They knew that it was him when they saw the marks. And Jesus has come to send them. So he comes, he shows them the truth, that there is forgiveness of sins. He says, even though I have been set by the Father, just so I am sending you. Now you go and proclaim that there is forgiveness of sins to the world. He receives the Holy Spirit, breathes on them. If you forgive the sins of any, right, is forgiven in the Holy Spirit. But if it is withheld from any, it is withheld. And now Thomas, this is where he comes in, he was not there. Now, we don't know exactly where Thomas was, but I could take a, a couple of guesses. Maybe he was, again, being pessimistic, being by himself, being, the, you know, the Eeyore of the bunch, just pouting in a self-pity. He could be, or he could have just been grocery shopping, or he could have been out doing something. You just, you, you, missed, you missed the meeting. That's all we know, is that Thomas was not there. And in the Greek... His name is Didymus, and I think it's just perfect. Did he miss? Yeah, he missed. <laughs> he missed big time. But he asks very selfishly for three pieces of evidence before he will believe. The hands with the mark of the nails. He wants to put his finger in there and put his finger in the side, or he will never believe. Right? This is the epitome of unbelief. He's demanding that the Lord show him something or he will never believe. But I have to ask the question of why does Thomas need to see the risen Christ? Is that important at all that he does? Well, in order to be an apostle, you have to see the risen Christ. Acts one twenty two says, one of these men must become with us an eyewitness to his resurrection. So in order to be an apostle, they have to see the risen Christ. And that's even more important as we read in Ephesians 2 that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, right? If they don't see the Christ, if they don't see the risen Christ, the message that we have is invalid. But it validates the message. It validates the forgiveness of sins. They've seen the risen Christ. They've seen in person the payment of sins in the flesh. They've seen it. And that's how we can have faith today. They wrote it down for us that we might believe and by believing find life in his name. Amen? Amen. And so I want to kind of explain this a little bit more in depth 
and say that we, we would even disembowel Christianity if we don't have the apostles seeing the resurrection. Right? We completely disembowel. And I use that word intentionally. Uh, I work at a bakery with Adam. He's here. He's my manager. But we, we work there, and we, we have a butcher, and, and he cuts open pigs, and he literally had to disembowel them at one point. And it's graphic, I know, and, it, and you probably don't like the, the sight of it, but, but it's very important to cut out the, the, the bowels of it. It is every living organism inside you that allows you to live, right? So when you disembowel, uh, you are literally making sure that there is no sign of life. And I would say that without the gospel, there is absolutely no sign of life for a Christian to grow or to live. It is that serious. I think the gospel is that serious. When Paul says the gospel is of first importance, I think we ought to take that serious. Believers will not make it to the end without the gospel being preached to them. Unbelievers will never come to faith and repentance without knowing the gospel, without seeing a Christian truly believe the gospel. I think we ought to take this very seriously. And finally, professing and believing Thomas. We're going to go down to 26 through 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. Then he went straight to Thomas. He says, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand here and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we have to see the amazing kindness for the Lord to come back, for the Lord to know that Thomas wasn't there, and to show him the exact things that he needed to see in order to believe. We have to give ultimate praise for this. He doesn't deserve to be seen. He was so deeply hardened in his unbelief. Yet Jesus came back and showed him that he might have life. Then we read the most amazing profession of faith possible. Thomas finally answers, My Lord and my God. He uses personal language. He's not saying you are Lord. He's saying you are my Lord and you are my God. The language here is so strong, it, it entails both amazement, the fact that Jesus actually showed up, that he did resurrect from the dead, of delight that Jesus did not leave him in his unbelief, but he showed up because he cared for him and wanted him to have life. Repentance. Oh, how I, un, how, I was so stuck in unbelief. How could I doubt you? Thank you for coming back. You are my Lord and my God forever. That is a statement of repentance. Of submission. I am not God. You are. And I completely depend upon you. You are my Lord. My leader and my God. And adoration. I adore you, Lord, with all my heart. How could I doubt you? My, my Lord and my God. How beautiful that Jesus came back. As I read this story, 
I think about the multiple times that God showed up in the midst of my unbelief, and for no reason whatsoever did he show up. As I used to believe that evolution was correct, and I completely rejected and even made fun of creation, one day I read Genesis and it made sense. I don't know why. It just happened. Or in 2013, as I went to New York City to do premarital counseling, I came out a Christian. I thought I was already. He shows up. He just shows up through his word, through people correcting and loving me. So can you, can you look back to that time when you first believed, when you first remember, oh, my sins are forgiven. Can you remember that? Does that bring you any joy now, just thinking about, oh, the fact that I was in sin, I was in unbelief, but still my God came and showed me, and he gave me faith in an unbelieving world. Can you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Right? T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Believed that Jesus is the Christ, and put my faith and trust in him, and said, My Lord, and you are my God. How sweet the sound. And look back now and see that there is no doubt a change in your life's direction. A change in delight. You no longer delight in those old things. Now you delight in Jesus and doing the things that make Him happy. Thinking on things that are honorable or pure, commendable. These now bring you joy, which never did before. But I hope you're asking this question, okay, how do I believe without seeing? I want to close with this. How do I believe then without seeing? If Thomas believed without seeing, how does someone like me believe without seeing? I don't know of any better way to say this than, than Charles Spurgeon's conversion. He knew his wretched and evil heart. He sought relief by reading his Bible, going to church, and would listen to people with tears strolling down their face talk about their Savior. But he did not know him. He was in a family who loved the Lord. He was too embarrassed to admit that he didn't. He didn't know what to do. The day was January 6, 1850. Spurgeon was not quite 16 years old. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending the snowstorm. One Sunday morning, while I was going to a certain place of worship, when I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce his words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, Look. Well, 
a man needed to go to college to learn how to look. May to be the biggest fool, and yet you can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You will never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up this text in this way. He says, look unto me. I am sweating and great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone about to about that length and managed to spin out about ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me, as if he knew all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life. Miserable in death. If you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look. Look, you have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that one word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until my eyes could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness was rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Look unto Christ and live and believe. That's the moral of the story. We can't look into ourselves into salvation. There's no use of looking in ourselves. Look unto Christ by faith and, and eat of Him without pay. Drink from Him and be satisfied forever. Look unto Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, Lord. We thank you for your amazing work, for your, your, your miraculous power in doing such miracles, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you do them, that we might believe. Lord, I thank you that your desire is that we come to you and have life. 
Lord, I thank you that while we were still condemned, you, you came to us that we might find life in you, Lord. I pray now for Fisherville Baptist, Lord, that we would come together, Lord, and we would continue to point each other to Christ, Lord, that we ourselves would be so desperate and joyful and running under the refuge of your wings, Lord, of finding shelter in you, of finding the only safe place to be in you. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to look unto you. Lord, give us the desire to share this great love with other people, Lord. Lord, I pray that us as a church, we would, we would continue to find much joy in our homes, in our workplaces, looking unto Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to have faith, to live in union with you, never wanting to separate from your presence. Lord, you are so precious. Lord, we thank you so much for spilling your blood that we might have life. Lord, we thank you so much for your broken body for us. God, I pray that we would continue to look to you for the rest of our life in utter dependence upon you with joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.